I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. We sing, usually we sing, when we're caught up with the joy of life or the joy of some great event. And this is the first time in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah sings. He sings because he's happy. He sings because he's in the grip of the grace of God. And he answers a question that we must always be asking ourselves. What are we for? Why are we here? For what reason did we get up out of bed this morning? What is the primary purpose of humanity? And the Bible's uniform answer is, in the language of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created for God. We were created to recognize and acknowledge His glory and His power, to admire His creative handiwork and intricate craftsmanship, to reflect on and boast about His marvelous deeds, to delight in His righteousness and faithfulness, to gratefully receive and thoroughly enjoy all His daily mercies, to trust His Word, to rest in His love, to believe His promises, and to confess His Son. We were made for God. But the reality is, of course, that we don't naturally do that. That even as His people, like these people, about whom we've been studying in the book of Isaiah, these people of ancient Israel and Judah, the church of their day, which had seen so many public and dramatic signs of God's goodness to them, who had received regularly the Word of God in promise as well as in threat, had regularly and consistently fallen short of giving God the praise that was His due. In Isaiah's day, the king Ahaz and the people following their king had demonstrated that they could not bring themselves to trust in God. They could not bring themselves to put their confidence in God's strength. And so they looked elsewhere for strength. They looked elsewhere for confidence. They looked elsewhere for something in which they could trust. We don't naturally, as human beings, we don't naturally place God at the center as the subject and object of our lives and our conversations and our worship and our service. We don't naturally do that. What we naturally do, even as His people, is this. We take His gifts without thanking Him. We admire His creation without giving Him the credit for making it. We draw our breath each morning without being aware that He has lent it to us for that day. We dismiss His truth, we flout His laws, we're indifferent to His love, and we're hostile to His Son. Here's the Apostle Paul's summary. When he's summing up the situation in the world, he says this, Though they knew God, talking about the world outside, Though they knew God, they may deny they know God, they may deny the God they know, 
but everybody is born into this world with a basic, fundamental, foundational, intrinsic, racial knowledge of God. It's built into your DNA. It is marked on your conscience. You cannot get away from it. Everybody knows God. And what do we do with that knowledge, Paul says? They did not honor Him as God, nor did they give thanks to Him. They did not honor Him as God, and they did not give thanks to Him. Honor, thanks. God is not the center. And Isaiah has been exposing this in these previous chapters. What is true of humanity at large often intrudes itself into the church in general. And the way it works is this. Religion becomes more pagan. Religion becomes merely a technique to manipulate God. So religion becomes a, a way of which my emotions, my emotional needs can be met by God. Or religion becomes the means by which I might be entertained. The dull boredom of my life and the monotony of my existence is relieved regularly by my encounters with God. It may not happen here, but it happens elsewhere. And, uh, or perhaps God is there to heal my pains, to make me feel better about myself, to make me feel better about my life, to help me get through the little crises of today and so on. In other words, it all becomes me. Centered. I make myself in a million ways the center of the world. And what a little section like this in Isaiah 12 reminds us of is to place our primary focus on God for God's sake. Now what the, the author of this song, for song it is, tells us is, that we are to praise God for His goodness. Now, I want you to notice that this is a song. It has two parts. Each part is marked by the expression in that day, in verse 1 and verse 4. In verse 1, it is an individual, you personally, singular. You will say in that day. In verse 4, it is the community. It is the church. It is the congregation of God's people. You, plural will say in that day. That's the distinguishing mark of this. So whether it's the individual or the community, whether it's the person or the church, whether it's the, the individual member of the house of God or the household of God, each of us is called upon to praise the Lord's goodness. Verses 1 and 2. And in those first two verses, you'll find language that would be reminiscent to a Jew of the language used of the Exodus, way back in the book of Exodus, where the children of Israel are led out of Egypt, you remember, by the mighty hand of God, and having got across the Red Sea, having seen the armies of Pharaoh and Egypt destroyed, breathing a sigh of relief, Moses and Miriam sing a great hymn of praise. Here in Isaiah, Isaiah has painted the picture of another Exodus, a return from exile, a return from an alienation from God back into God's presence, back into the promised land. In that day, in that day when there is a much bigger deliverance, a much greater salvation, in that day, he's referring to the future. He's referring primarily to that day when the greater exodus would be accomplished by the Lord Jesus, 
the Lamb of God, who would die for the sins of his people, delivering us not from exile in Babylon or slavery in Egypt, but from exclusion from the presence of God himself. And do you notice in this song, which is a doxology, a song using the language uh, of the Psalter, the great Psalms of David and others, central to the liturgy of Israel. The focus is on Yahweh's goodness and generosity. I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh. God is at the center. And he's not at the center because God is some kind of sick neurotic who needs his ego boosted regularly by his people. God does not need us. He does not need our praise or our thanks or anything we have to give him. He has need of nothing of that. So why do we do it? We do it because that is the proper response to God for being God. It is the proper response of creatures that they should acknowledge their creator. It is the proper response of redeemed people that they should recognize and applaud their redeemer. It is the proper response of those who are dead in trespasses and sins to give thanks to the one who has made them alive in Christ Jesus. It is the proper response of children who are daily the recipients of their father's generosity and kindness and goodness, that they should look up to their father and say, thank you, thank you. Praise is the proper response. Not only that, but prayer is good for you. Praise does this. Praise releases us from that love affair with ourselves that makes ourselves the center of the world. So many of our problems stem from the fact that all of our life revolves around me, myself, and I. And that's sometimes the way we come, isn't it? When we come to church. I come to church like that sometimes. Well, maybe more often than I care to admit. And I'm sitting in the pulpit here and I feel all kind of closed up inside. I feel, you know, I feel as if, you know, I feel really miserable. I don't feel I want to see you. Really, frankly, don't anybody turn up today. I, I really don't feel like preaching. I'm not really ready for this. And, and it's been a bad week and, uh, and all of that. I know it's been bad for you as well, but it's always worse for me. You understand? And <laughs> so there I am feeling miserable. And what happens is this. We start to do what? We start, when we come together, we start to praise God's glory. And as the service proceeds and you sing the words, even if you don't feel them, even if you don't feel like singing them, I'm up here, I've got to do it, because so, you all see whether I'm singing or not. But, but you do the same. You sing the words, whether you, whether you feel like singing them or not, and as you sing the praises of God, so, suddenly, you know, or, or you feel slowly, you turn out from inside and you turn outwards, outwards, more outwards towards God and therefore more out towards each other. That's what praise does. Praise releases you from that love affair with yourself that makes yourself and your feelings the center of the world. The focus of praise is God. And the cause of praise, do you notice, is the great work that God has done. You will say, in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for, here's the reason, though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This is an amazing thing. 
as he summarizes the problem. Here is the issue. He doesn't, Isaiah does not at this point explain how it is that the anger of God can be turned away from people who deserve it. But he looks at the outcome. He says, your anger has been turned away from me and you have come to comfort me. That brings to mind, doesn't it, later on in Isaiah chapter 40, where he talks about the comforting word of God to his people. That comforting word can only be spoken once the anger of God is exhausted, turned away from us. And he won't explain here, though he will explain later in chapter 53, how that anger can be turned away from us. But here he just gives us the outcome. I will give thanks because you were angry, but your anger is turned away that you might comfort me. Let me say a thing about God's anger. God's anger is not personal pique. It's not injured ego or hurt pride. God's anger is always justified anger. His wrath is always righteous wrath. And he can only comfort us when what has provoked his anger and provoked his wrath has been dealt with. And let me just underline this. Sin in the Bible is not a small thing. Sin is a small thing to us. I'll tell you why sin is a small thing to us. We look at ourselves and we see our failures and so on and our weaknesses we're very conscious of those, but we reduce every, every, everybody else's sins down as well because we want our sins to be taken less seriously than they need to be taken. So we can't judge. We say we, we must never judge other people's sins or whatever, behavior or whatever, because we know what we, we're sinners too. But the reality is, of course, that all sin, no matter how big or small in our eyes, all sin is an affront and an offense to a holy God. It's serious because the measure of sin is the measure of the one against whom the sin has been committed. And our sin is committed against whom? Against the holy God of Israel. It's a very serious thing. And any Jews reading this, you see, any people of Isaiah's day reading this would be asking the question, well, what can deal with the anger of God? If the anger of God is real and the anger of God is directed towards me, what can remove that anger? There has to be a sacrifice that can turn away the anger of God. There has to be what the New Testament calls a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away anger, away from me, onto an innocent other. Whether that's a lamb or an animal in the sacrificial system of Israel, or as we now see from our perspective, the Lamb of God, who takes the justified anger of God on himself, diverts it from me unto himself. The psalmist, or the, or the poet, the prophet who's writing this in the psalmist style isn't at this point talking about how that happens, but he's talking about the outcome. He's alerting us to the fact that this is what it means for us to have salvation. Do you see that in verse 2? This is his theme. He understands that he could never have turned aside the anger of God. God had to do that himself. So therefore, God is my salvation. Very personal. God is my rescuer. God is my deliverer. God has got me out of that mess. He's now able to comfort me. I don't know how he did it, but that's how he's doing it. I think of the language of, of David in his Psalm 51, as we know it, 
when he's confessing his sin and he realizes that as an adulterer and a murderer, he deserves the death penalty and there's no sacrifice that covers that. And as he comes to God, he realizes that reality and he says, I want you, Lord, to do what only you can do. There's a sacrifice you know about, O Lord, that I don't know about. And I want you to dip the hyssop in the blood of that sacrifice and wash me that I might be clean. That sacrifice is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see what the effect of this all is. He discovers, he's able to say this, because salvation is of God, I will trust and I will not be afraid. That same language was the language that Isaiah had used when he was confronting King Ahaz. And he said to the king, trust and don't be afraid. The king neither trusted nor did he did he have the res- resolution not to be afraid? He, he was scared stiff and he trusted in others rather than in the Lord. But here Isaiah says, the person who's come to terms with God's salvation, the person who's read Romans and reads those words, God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The person who's seen that trusts and is not afraid. Salvation is always delivered whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, always delivered through faith, always delivered by faith. And the upshot of that is this. Look at the end of verse 2. The Lord God, Yahweh, is my strength, my song, my salvation. He's my strength. Ahaz and Israel and Judah had looked around and said, here we are, we're surrounded by enemies that are bigger than we are, stronger than we are. They're going to overwhelm us and they're going to destroy us. Where can we look for strength in the midst of that crisis? Here Isaiah says we had a bigger problem than Assyria. We had a bigger problem than the joint uh, nations to the north who had amalgamated together in order to attack us. That wasn't our fundamental problem. Our fundamental problem was our alienation against the God who made us and the God who redeemed us and the God who made us a nation. And we sinned against that God. That was our basic problem. And we couldn't do anything about that problem. But God is our strength. God did it. God did it. He came to the rescue. He is our rescuer. He is our strength. And because God has acted for us in power, he is our song. It it provokes joy. Joy in our hearts. God's work on our behalf should set the soul singing. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. God has done that work in our hearts. It was a song sung by Moses and Miriam after the... the, uh, the victory over the enemy and the safety brought, being brought through the Red Sea. The song of salvation. God, who is our strength and our song, is our salvation. Talking about the rule of God, now the arrival of God. God has come onto the scene. and He's celebrating God's goodness. As a believer, God's goodness. Look at the personal language here. If you're a believer, you can use this language. God is my strength. So when I'm at my weakest, He is strong. He is my song. He is the theme of my song. God, 
dominates every reason I have to be happy in the world. God is my song and my salvation. He alone has done this work. He alone has rescued me and brought me out of darkness to light and out of death to life. He is my salvation. A lady was sitting in a railway carriage and uh, this rather august-looking gentleman came and sat opposite her and she recognized, number one, that he was a bishop of the church. He had all the regalia on. This was in England, you understand, where they wear that regalia. And uh, he was sitting there looking very important. And uh, this lady came from an evangelical church. She was an evangelical persuasion, which meant that she assumed that any bishop must be a pagan. And... Uh, so she asked him the question. She thought she was evangelizing the bishop. She said to the bishop, are you saved? What she didn't know was that this was an evangelical bishop and that actually he did know his Bible. So he said to her, my dear lady, my dear lady, he was very posh, my dear lady, do you mean have I been saved? Am I being saved? Or am I going to be saved? In other words, he was pulling rank. And... Uh, teasing out what the word salvation means. And of course, it means all of those things. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you don't fear. You don't fear because you trust in Him. You don't fear because you have been saved. You've been saved. And right now, in the midst of your struggles and weaknesses and trials and fears and temptations and failures and risings again, you are being saved. And on that last day, when Jesus comes in power, he will bring salvation. That is the final part of that salvation. The salvation bit that includes your body and this planet. Full salvation comes when Jesus comes, bringing that salvation on the final day. Salvation is a package. Being saved, being saved, will be saved. And the Lord is our salvation. So praise the Lord's goodness. And secondly, prove the Lord's goodness. In verse 3, with joy you, plural, you as a congregation, you as a people of God, will draw water from the wells of salvation. There was this uh, theme that Isaiah has already mentioned and that comes up again and again in the prophets. God's people, though they've been redeemed, find themselves from time to time thirsty and needy, and needing refreshed as well as rescued, and revived as well as brought out of their danger. Not only that, but very often God's people, even though they know God, are tempted to look elsewhere for their satisfaction. Remember uh, Jeremiah, later than Isaiah, Jeremiah says, this, my people have committed two, er two evils. Here are the two evils. My people, by the way. First, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What was Jeremiah saying? Jeremiah was saying this. Here are my people. Here are the people of God. They should know better. They should know that their deepest satisfaction that their greatest contentment, that the thing that will really nourish their souls for eternity is what? 
is God himself. But what are they doing? They're looking everywhere. They're trying to find their satisfaction in being active Christians. Let me tell you this, you can be as busy as you want to as a Christian. That will not satisfy your soul. It might dry you out, but it won't quench the thirst of your soul. You may do it and do it well and obediently for God, but that will not in itself meet any of your needs. It will just make you tired. No, only God refreshes us. You find people doing this all the time in life around us who aren't Christian people. We persuade ourselves that if only we had more money or another partner or a better job or a nicer home or a smarter car or a more exciting social life, then we'll be happy. And guess what? We're never truly happy without God in Christ. We're never truly happy without God in Christ. There's an old hymn we used to sing on Sunday nights. On Sunday nights, we sang the hymns that didn't qualify for Sunday mornings. And on Sunday night, we used to sing this hymn, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Now, for little boys, that was a really funny song in those days because we used to have cisterns. The only cisterns we knew about were the ones in the toilet that you pulled the thing and you know, so when we sang that as a, when I sang that as a boy, frankly, it went over my head. But of course, in time with maturing and so on, I, I discovered what it's referring to. It's referring to the passage in Jeremiah where people are creating cisterns in which they can collect water, but there's no water to collect in them. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. But you see, those who know this salvation are to draw from the wells of salvation. So you don't come to Christ and have your soul saved and then get on with it by yourself. You come to Christ and you keep coming. You keep coming. Who is it that has the living water? Jesus, you remember, says to that woman at the well of Samaria, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would have said to him, give me living water. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to satisfy our souls. He gives us the Holy Spirit who refreshes us over and over and over again. Beloved, beloved, don't come to Christ for your salvation and then leave it there. Come back again. Press on into this salvation. Prove the Lord's goodness day by day by day by day, moment by moment. Keep yourselves in the love of Christ. Draw morning by morning from the abundant, fresh, satisfying supply that the Lord Jesus brings into your life. We sing sometimes that lovely hymn, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men. From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. This morning we've come back. Let me just tell you that. We've come thirsty. We've come finding that the things of this world can exhaust you. And the things of this world can do all kinds of things. But they don't satisfy the part of you that only Christ can satisfy. Don't look to your wife or your husband or your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Or to your job or your career. No matter how satisfying they are and enjoyable they are. Don't, don't look to these things to fill the part of your life that only God 
in Christ can satisfy. Praise the Lord's goodness. Prove the Lord's goodness. And lastly, verses 4 to 6, proclaim the Lord's goodness. Proclaim the Lord's goodness. Look what he says in verse 4. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Here's the thing. Make known his deeds among the peoples, that is the nations. And then parallel to that, saying the same thing slightly differently, proclaim that his name is exalted. It's poetic. Parallel, par- parallelism there. Give thanks. Call on his name. Let people know. This is what he's saying. Way back in the Genesis, way back in the beginning, I think it's Genesis chapter 4, we read that way back there at the beginning of time, after the fall of Adam, after the exclusion from Eden, when the, the, the multitude of people are multiplying upon the earth, people started to call on the name of the Lord. That expression becomes a technical expression for the gathering of God's people in worship. So that when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he can speak to the Corinthians as those who, with people everywhere, are now calling on the name of the Lord. So when he says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, he's saying now publicly, together. This is plural, by the way, from from verse uh, 4 onwards. Together, call on his name. That's what we do in public worship. Not only that, we make known his deeds among the nations. In other words, we don't keep it to ourselves. We want the people out there to hear about the mighty deeds of our God. And we want to proclaim to them that his name is exalted. Martin Luther, when he translated this into German, used the German word for preach. Preach it that his name is exalted. He is exalted. Everything you can say about God is concentrated in that name, denoting his character. Abraham, when he brought the children, brought them to the promised land, he called upon the name of the Lord and called upon his deeds to the nations. What are we saying to the people? This is what we're saying to the people. His name is exalted. That above all earthly powers, above all human institutions, above all celebrity influence, above all creation's wonders, above all space's heights, the Lord is the Holy One of Israel. He is the only truly high and holy and worthy One. And that when everything else disappears, like the morning mist, He remains. Nothing can diminish His glory. He remains. Notice that. Sing praises to the Lord. He has done gloriously. He has done gloriously. And He is the Holy One of Israel. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. That's all those who belong to the church of God. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now He's taking us right back to the middle of this section. This is chapter 12. In chapter 6, He goes into the temple. Remember? He goes into the temple and he sees the old temple dwarfed by the presence of God. Transcending the space. Going up, as it were, into outer space. Just the hem of his garment filling the temple area. God high and exalted and lifted up. And he's saying at the very heart of the worship of God. At the very center of the people of God. 
in that meeting place between heaven and earth, there is this exalted God, and He is the Holy One of Israel. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of Thy glory. He's saying to us, as God's people, that at the very center of our lives as the subject and object of our praise and our living and our worship and our giving and everything, there is God Himself. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. Great in your midst. Beloved, This language that's used here, of the plural language of the people of God, this last phrase sums up what God wants to see most in His church. It's rather remarkable to me that this should be the case this Sunday morning. That on this particular Sunday morning, What should be highlighted and left with us in our minds as we go out into this week is this, that what God most wants to see with His corporate people when they are together, what He most wants to see is His blistering holiness, recognized, taken seriously, lived out by His own people. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And onlookers looking on should look at the church and they should say, these people really believe that they live their lives under the eye of a holy God. These people really believe that everything they say and sing they do in the presence of this holy God, great in your midst, is the Holy One of Israel. And may God grant it that as people see that in our church life, as they see that we take God seriously, they might, in the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, they might be overwhelmed by that, struck with a fear of God, and might pursue with us, who is this God you worship? How may we know Him? And how is it that you can balance in your life this godly, holy fear of His holiness and this ecstatic joy in His salvation? Because it's through just judgment that salvation comes. And we are those who know that the judgment was exacted on Calvary. And Jesus on Calvary as the new and true and faithful Israel goes through the judgment of wrath so that we today can, in the presence of God, celebrate this great salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that as we draw to a close in this worship time, that we might also be very conscious that we are in your presence, great in the midst of us is the Holy One of Israel. And we ask that that may not just be words we say or read or hear, 
but the reality we feel and sense and know to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.